Well, brothers and sisters, I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke. Last week, you will remember that we, uh, we went over the fact that uh, Luke, the Gospel according to Luke, is actually properly understood, part of a two-volume series of historical works that Luke, the Gentile uh, physician who had uh, probably been converted by Paul, certainly traveled with him, worked with him, compiled, showing uh, what had happened during the ministry of Christ. He had that wonderful opportunity to ask questions of the disciples, men like Peter, and to find out the things that Christ had said. And then, of course, he was inwardly illuminated. His words are inspired, although God used Luke with all of his idioms, all of his expressions, his wonderful uh, Greek grammar. Yet we know that every word of this book was given by the Holy Spirit. Uh, and now we're going to find out the unfolding of uh, the nativity of Christ, his, his birth. But that, uh, that story starts, of course, before the birth of Christ. And I don't just mean with the announcement that John the Baptist would be born to a priest by the name of Zacharias uh, and his wife Elizabeth, but rather that uh, it began in eternity before when the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit entered into that covenant of redemption to redeem us that the day would come in the fullness of time when Jesus would take to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, be born of a woman, born under the law, be born in a town called Bethlehem, the town of his father uh, after the flesh, David, but he would be great David's greater son, the promised Messiah. We're going to see how Luke unfolds that story beautifully to us. But before we uh, begin reading, let's go to the God who gave this word and let's ask for his assistance. Please join me. O oh, Sovereign Lord, we need your help today. Lord, I confess that I will not be able to open up this word and explain it, expound it aright without your Holy Spirit indwelling me and helping me to divide the word aright. And I know, O oh Lord, that your people will not receive it unless, O oh Lord, you bless it to them, unless you open up the ear gate, fix our attention upon it. I know, O oh Lord, that it is your will, your desire that they would hear your word today and profit by it. And I pray that they would. I know, O oh Lord, that these words were not simply written down for people a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago. They were written for us. They were written so that we might grow in grace and the knowledge of the living Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Be with us now and give us, O oh Lord, that holy sense of joy at receiving the good news that Gabriel brought to Zacharias that day. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Um. This is the word of the Lord. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. His wife, uh, his wife rather, was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, 
Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, that he departed to his own house. Now after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go ahead, if you would. And turn in your Bibles to the last, I, keep your finger on Luke if you can, uh, but turn in your Bibles to the last book of the Old Testament. You will find that that is Malachi, I'm sure you already know that. And then to the last page of the last te- book of the Old Testament, that would be Malachi 4, and then verse 6. And then if you would, go ahead and turn, keeping open Malachi, you can do this. Note how many pages are in between Malachi and the first book of the New Testament. In most of your Bibles, it's only, what, one little thin page, right? And that's very misleading because that little one page represents 400 years. 400 years of silence between Malachi 4 and verse 6 and Matthew 1 and verse 1. It's not so much space in your Bibles, but in in time, it's quite a a good deal. 400 years, for instance, is, what would that be? That would be 1623 in American history. 1623, the the pilgrims had just landed on Plymouth Rock. Uh, All of the things that we take for granted at, at this point did not yet exist. The cell phone was merely a nightmare that people had maybe occasionally that would be this device that bothered us continuously and stopped us from speaking to people in front of us. But the last page of Malachi that uh, I asked you to, to take a look at, chapter 4 and verse 5, 400 years before Zacharias went into the temple and was ministering there on that day. It reads, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. The last verse of the Old Testament ends with a promise given to God's people. 
A promise of a coming prophet, a prophet like unto Elijah who would make ready the way for the coming of the greatest prophet, the word of God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one whom we must hear, who is the very image of the Lord. These were the words that God gave to his people through Malachi. The name Malachi meant my messenger. So the final thing that he tells them before those 400 years of silence begin was that he would send Elijah the prophet before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. But the question that God's people asked in those days of silence with longing hearts is, when, Lord? O Lord, when, how long must we wait before the coming of the prophet and then the coming of the Messiah, great David's greater son, the one who would restore the kingdom? When will that happen? 400 years were to pass, 400 years of silence before this word of revelation. Note this, 400 years of silence broken by the words of the angel Gabriel to Zacharias in the temple on that particular day when he was ministering. Suddenly, without any warning, after that long silence, the angel of the Lord a Malak, you had Malachi, his human messenger, his, this prophet who wrote down those words of promise. And now God sends literally a Malak, the Hebrew word for the angel, a messenger, appears to Zacharias and announces to him this incredible thing that he will have a son in his old age. He and his wife Elizabeth had longed for a son and it had never happened. They had never had a child like Abraham and Sarah, no doubt they were expecting that they would, they would die and then their, their belongings would pass on to a near relative. There would be no one to inherit those things. But now Zacharias receives the good news that he is going to have a son in his old age. And not just any son, but the son that Israel was supposed to be looking for. The prophet in the spirit and power of Elijah who was going to prepare the people of Israel for the coming of the Lord. The Elijah who would prepare the nation for the long-awaited Messiah. The one who would be Emmanuel this prophet would say, Emmanuel, God with us, God tabernacling with his people, as Isaiah 7.14 calls him, will come. The passages that we have read, therefore, tell us about that incredible moment in history when the period of silence between Old and New Testament is broken, and now we see that the prophet is about to appear who's going to tell the people the long-awaited Messiah is coming. That is the importance of what you just read. It's earth-shakingly important because, of course, the coming of the Messiah was the most important thing that ever happened in human history. So Zacharias, we could call him, in every sense, a very blessed man, man rather. He is about to have the child that he always wanted, and that is a great blessing, obviously. Uh, but we know that he was blessed in another sense, more than simply the Lord giving him the desire of his heart. We know this man was blessed because he was saved. This was a man who knew the Lord in a saving sense. Verse 6 tells us that he and his wife, what does it say of them? Let me remind you. It says, and they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. These were people whose sin had been forgiven. 
And they, like their father Abraham, were saved, not because they were blameless in the sense that they had never committed sins. In fact, I mean, in the section that you just read, we see Gabriel saying, you haven't believed the Lord. Zacharias is, in a very real sense, guilty of the sin of unbelief. He is told this wonderful news, and yet he does not believe it, even though it has come from a messenger for God, from God. He is not absolutely blameless in that sense. No, he has received a righteousness that was not his own, a righteousness that came from God. He and his wife, Elizabeth, were saved through faith. Faith in who? Faith in the promised Messiah. They believed the promises of God, the covenant promises of God. You remember that God had told Abraham almost 2,000 years before that from his seed, a son named Isaac, who was yet to be born, from his seed would come the Savior, not just of the Jews, but the Savior of the nations, the blessing of the nations. So referring to Genesis 15, the Apostle Paul would later write, In Galatians chapter 3, and you may want to turn to Galatians 3 and read this. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. The Lord had told Abraham that from him would come the seed that would be the blessing of the nations. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The promise was given to Abraham that his son would eventually be the root, that the, uh, the seed that would bless the nations would come from. He believed that promise, and as a result, he was saved. He believed the covenant promises of God. In John chapter 8, Jesus says to the Jews, your father Abraham saw my day, and he rejoiced. He looked forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why was it that that was so important, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, because, as I said before, he is literally Emmanuel, God with us. That is why Jesus was able to say in the same uh, section where he was saying, your, Abra- uh, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He was also able to say, most assuredly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. Now, you remember, we, we just read from John chapter 18. There's, I, I, I like the New King James Version very, very much. I think it's a wonderful translation of the Word of God. I think it takes the essence of the King James Version of the Bible with all the beauty of its language, and it updates it. It gives you a modern version of the Bible. But there are some times where it adds things that I think actually detract from the text. Uh, You'll always be able to tell in a modern translation of the Bible where you're reading something that was added for understanding. The translators added a word because they wanted you to understand what was being said in English uh, in a way that it wouldn't normally come across if they went with a, a strictly literal interpretation of Hebrew or Greek. And one of the things that you read in John 18 is what Jesus said to that troop of soldiers who came to address him. He said, who are you looking for? Who have you come to arrest? And you remember in your New King James Version, it says, I am he, when they say Jesus of Nazareth. They say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and your Bible says, I am he. That's something that you and I would say, right? I am he, if that, you know, who are you looking for? Your name, I am he. But that's not actually what the Bible says. 
In the Greek, it says simply, ego eimi, I am. Now, those words are incredibly important. When Moses asked God, who shall I say sent me? And the words that he was given, the name of God that he was given is I am. I am is the name of God. He is the only one who is, who has essential being in of himself. And that's why in John 8.56, when the Jews had asked, or rather in 8.57, the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, ego eimi, I am. What is Jesus saying there? He is declaring he is God. So the prophet who was to be sent to make the way straight for the coming of the Messiah was also making the way plain and straight for the people of God to receive God the Son. This is the news that God the Son is coming to dwell, to tabernacle with his people. It is incredibly important. That is why it is so very, very important. We need to remember, therefore, and this is one application of what we've read, that every believer, people like Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth in the Old Testament, the people who came uh, before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the people of God who believed the promises of God, all of them were saved by the same thing. And that was not covenant obedience. It wasn't their obedience to the commandments of God. They were saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, faith in Christ alone. But of course, in the Old Testament, that faith was not in Jesus as Jesus, knowing him by that name. It was faith in God's promised Messiah, faith in Emmanuel, God with us, faith in Jehovah Sidkenu, as Jeremiah calls him, the Lord our righteousness. They were saved by faith in the coming of Jesus Christ. He would be coming as the blessing of nations. They believed and therefore they were saved by that faith in him. You see, the cross of Christ, and this is of, of the greatest importance to remember, is the nexus of the Bible. It's at the very heart of the Bible, the very center of it. And this, of course, is at the very center of human history. The people in the Old Testament looked forward to the day of the coming of Christ. They believed upon him, and they were saved by that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the people who were born after the coming of Christ, after his birth, they looked back upon it. People like you and me, the New Testament believers, and we were saved by the Jesus who came. You see, the people of the Old Testament, they were given that faith in God's promised one, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Job, uh, one of the oldest of the patriarchs in the Bible, was able to say in, John, in uh, Job chapter 19, I know that my Redeemer lives and that after his flesh was destroyed, after he had died, he would see him in the flesh after the resurrection. He had this well-founded hope in the coming of God's anointed Redeemer. And there are so many wonderful pictures of justification by faith alone in God's promised Redeemer in the Old Testament. The, the most famous one, of course, is Isaiah 53, the gospel according to Isaiah. But a lesser-known one occurs in Zechariah chapter 3. If you turn back to the minor prophets and to Zechariah, you see this, this wonderful picture of salvation in Zechariah 3.1, and the way it works. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest 
standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. And he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the, angel, uh, they put the clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. Now, I, I said before that uh, there, you know, there are certain things that you can see from the way that uh, the text is, uh, is either italicized or written down in your Bible. Uh, it gives you insights into what is actually being translated. In uh, Zechariah 3.1, you'll notice that when we read the angel of the Lord and when the angel is referred to before there, is it a capital letter or a lowercase letter for angel? Normally, we would use the lowercase a for an angel, right? So, for instance, the angel Gabriel, lowercase or uppercase? Lowercase. But here, is it a lowercase or an uppercase? It's an uppercase. Angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord. Which messenger have the translators determined was standing there in this vision next to Joshua, the high priest? Jesus. This is a reference to Christ in the Old Testament. And he is the one who gives him, Joshua, the representative of the people, the covenant people of God, a righteousness not their own, the clothes of his own, the filthy rags, his own attempts at righteousness are taken away and they're replaced with clean garments. Here we have justification by faith alone, by the imputation of that righteousness of God. We can't obtain it ourselves. We can't earn it. It is given to us. Here it is in the Old Testament declared, the way of salvation through faith in the Lord's appointed messenger, the messenger of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the great good news of the gospel, that one would be sent into the world. Because you see, you and I, brothers and sisters, could not save ourselves. We were those who were dwelling in darkness. We were those who were the sons and daughters of rebels. We had turned each and every single one of us away from God. All of us, like sheep, had gone astray. If we were to be saved, it had to be saved, we had to be saved by the shepherd coming to save us. What did you and I contribute to our salvation? Well, Jonathan Edwards put it very well when he said, the sin that made it necessary. That is what we contributed. God saved us. And that not, he didn't suddenly decide to do that on a whim. He determined before creation that he would send his own dear son, Jesus, into the world to save us from our sins. And so Zacharias and his wife, they were brands plucked from the fire just as surely as you and I, because they were trusting that God would send his promised one in the fullness of time. But there are many other ways in which we can see that Zacharias was blessed. He was blessed because, as we read in verse 9 of Luke chapter 1, out of thousands of priests who served in the temple, his name was drawn by lot to burn incense in the Holy of Holies. This was an only once in a lifetime experience. There were so many priests that only one time would these priests be allowed to have this great honor. This was the time when they, lesser priests, not the high priest, would draw nearest to the Holy of Holies. They were just outside 
the room in which the Ark of the Covenant had once been kept. It was the room that the, the priests would enter into on Yom Kippur once a year and sprinkle blood for the people of God. Only the high priest could go in there. This was the area just outside where we had the showbread, the menorah, and the altar of incense burning there. And the most solemn part of the entire daily liturgy was the the burning of incense. It was then that the priest approached closest, as I said, to that veil separating the holy place from the holy of holies. And it was a unique privilege. It was so unique that a priest could only expect to do it once in his lifetime. And so this is his once-in-a-lifetime experience of burning incense on the altar there, symbolizing the prayers of God's people ascending into the heavens. After that, a priest was considered rich and holy because he had been given a privilege that was so uncommon, even amongst the priests in Israel. And so the people are, are waiting for him to come out. After he had burned the incense, symbolizing their prayers ascending, he would come out and he would pronounce the ironic blessing from Numbers chapter 6, the one that I use so very often. He would make that pronouncement over the people. So they're, they're waiting for that. And after that, that benediction, there would be songs of praise and the public offerings would be. So their, their worship is literally interrupted. In order to understand this, I don't know if you've ever been... Um, in a worship service, and suddenly there's a pause. (laughs) And it lingers. Like, for instance, perhaps the the, the pastor is praying and he stops. Or maybe you're in a prayer meeting and somebody's been praying and suddenly they stop and you're like, are they done? They didn't say amen. We're halfway through a sentence. You don't know quite what to do. Everybody would have been standing out there. What do we do now? We can't go into the into the holy place. We, you know, nobody can kind of knock on the door and say, you okay in there? Everybody has to wait for him to come out. And so everybody would be kind of turning to each other the way, you know, in the prayer meeting, eventually you open your eyes and you kind of look. Should, should I go? You know. And so he hasn't come out. Why? Because of the experience that was going on in there. Something that was wonderful, something that was more than just the opportunity to to serve in such a privileged position in worship. That's the second great blessing. He has chosen to receive the first new special revelation from God in 400 years. Gabriel speaks, and that's the first time that God has spoken since Malachi. He's blessed, of course, because he's going to have a child with his wife in his old age. He's blessed also because John will be part of the answer of God's people's prayers. He will be the one who says that the Messiah is coming and point to him. He will literally point to the Messiah, the Son of God, and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the privilege, the inestimable privilege that Zacharias' son will have. He's blessed also because the dearest wish of all Christian parents will be granted. I don't know if you noticed this, but his son will be regenerate or saved from the womb. All of us who are Christians, when we have kids, our dearest desire is that our children would know the Lord, that he would not merely be the God of their fathers, but their Lord and their God. Well, Zechariah is told, your son from the very womb will be regenerate. 
He will know him from that point. The Holy Spirit will indwell him. John will be born saved. That's not normally the case, obviously. Normally, it's, it's through the preaching of the word, the preaching or the reading of the word that we're saved, accompanied by the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit. But in this case, the Holy Spirit will indwell him from the very womb. And so we'll see him in a little while giving away the story, leaping in his mother's womb when he hears the voice of the mother of his Savior. He's also blessed because John will be the source by which many of Israel's people are reconciled to the Lord their God. Imagine this, a promise is given to a parent. Not only will your son be saved, but your son will be the greatest preacher of his age, the greatest preacher before the age of the apostles, and he will be the means by which many of the Jews will be reconciled to their God. How our hearts would leap, how your heart would leap, O oh Christian, if you were told your son will not just be a great preacher, he will be the instrument of the salvation of thousands. Wouldn't that fill your heart with joy? Shouldn't it fill your heart with joy when you would hear something like that? He's also blessed because he is going to see these things unfolding in his lifetime. It's one thing to be told that the promise is coming, but to actually be an eyewitness of those things, to see them unfolding. But the amazing thing is, isn't it, that Jesus said that you're more richly blessed than those who saw, you who came after, you who believed without seeing, who believed by faith. We saw that in the case of Thomas, but... Oh, all these blessings are pronounced to Zacharias. And how does he respond to the words of Gabriel, the angel who stands in the very presence of God, who's sent by the Lord to bring him glad tidings? I don't know how it's... Uh, wait a second. I'm old. How, how does... How about, huh? How are these things going to come to pass? It just doesn't seem possible. He responds literally by saying... I, I, I may need a little more proof, because this seems like a big deal. It, it seems impossible. He responds with hesitation. There's a, there's a glimmer of unbelief. Now, one can understand it. I mean, he and Elizabeth are old. This is uh, the Lord speaking to somebody for the first time in 400 years. It is, it is a huge deal. But nonetheless, in that moment, he forgot that with God, all things are possible. Thankfully, a little while later, when Mary is told that she's going to have a child, uh, not through the normal course of affairs, but that this child will be the son of the living God, that uh, he will be incarnate in her womb through the power of the Holy Spirit, she says, let it be according to your will, rather than, what? How are these things going to happen? That, you know. So the rule is, brothers and sisters, just to cut it short, remember this. If the Lord God says it's going to come to pass, it's going to come to pass. He has never been wrong yet, and he never will be. Every promise from God is absolutely trustworthy. He is the Lord. He does not change. And he alone has the power to bring to pass everything he ordains. Now, this, this wavering, this unbelief momentary of righteous Zacharias isn't a singular thing in the Bible. Uh, we see all the time great men of the faith wavering in their faith for a moment. It happened to Abraham, it happened to Isaac, it happened to Moses, it happened to Hezekiah, it happened to the apostles. And so it shouldn't surprise us that this kind of thing happens. At one point or another, we don't have quite as much confidence in the promises of God that we should. 
Hasn't it happened to you and I on an almost daily basis, not having as much confidence in the promises of God as we should, his promises for us? Have you ever woken up in the morning and said, all right, I believe Christ is the Savior, but am I really saved? I don't feel saved this morning. Have you ever woken up and wondered whether God's promises are for you? It has happened to me more than once. I've looked at the world, I've seen the darkness of it, and I've been tempted to despair. That's an unbelief in the promises of God. Brothers and sisters, you know the end from the beginning. The word you have complete before you tells you what happens in the end. Christ triumphs. And if you're a Christian, you're on the winning side. Therefore, what do we have to fear? Why would we despair? We know what happens. Everything has been happening according to God's redemptive promises. You see this in this passage. God had promised to Abraham 2,000 years prior to the events that we read about that in the fullness of time, his son would be born, that's Isaac, and then from his seed would come the seed who would be the blessing to the nations, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And indeed, that came to pass. Now, if all of those things have come to pass, one after another, and consider all the things that had to happen. Every, every molecule had to be in place, every atom. There couldn't be an aberrant virus, for instance, that would wipe out the line of Abraham. There couldn't be a, a nomadic warrior who would come and, and, and kill one of the critical patriarchs at the wrong period in time and so on. All these different things had to line up perfectly. All of those things happened in the fullness of time until Jesus Christ came forth. Therefore, why should we doubt that everything that has been said still is going to happen will happen? All of those things that have been foretold, brothers and sisters, will come to pass just as surely as Christ was born in Bethlehem, exactly the way that God had prophesied it would happen. So too Christ will return and he will triumph. You don't need to fear. And yet we do. That's that element of unbelief creeping in. We fear for the future. We fear for our children. We fear for, will we have enough money? We fear, will we be happy? All of these things. Don't fear. What's the first thing angels say when they appear to people? Fear not. Every single time. That should be something that we hear from the voice of God every morning. Fear not. Don't fear, brothers and sisters. All of these things will come to pass. So as we go through the gospel account of Luke, verse by verse, let it be a settled maxim of your faith to trust every word in it implicitly, to know that the God who kept his promises to Israel is going to keep his promises to you as well, who are his children. You are part of believing Israel. You are the people of God, are you not? If you are called by his name, then you are his, and you are also Abraham's seed by faith. Do you know that? I hope you do. The promises of God should drive away all doubt. And if God has promised that if you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, his Redeemer, you will be saved, then know for a certainty you will be saved. If you say to God, yes, but I'm such a sinner, of course you are. 
But is there any sin so great that the blood of the Lamb of God cannot wash it away? The answer is no. Do not be so proud as to think you can outsin God. You would be the first person in history ever to do so. It's impossible. His grace is always greater still. His promises always come to pass. The God who came and spoke to Zacharias through his angel has in the fullness of time spoken to us through his son. Therefore, put your faith and your confidence in him. Trust in him and do not doubt. Let's go before him. God, our Father, we do thank you, Lord, that you have unfolded in history your redemptive plan. Lord, if we see the way that you ordered things so that in the fullness of time Jesus would be born and that he would accomplish all that you sent him to do, dying for our sins on Calvary, rising again, and then ascending into heaven, why would we doubt that he will return? Why would we doubt that he will put all things right? Help us, therefore, to live and to walk by faith, not by sight, to believe his word implicitly, knowing that we can trust every single part of it. Help us, O Lord. Let us be like that father who cried out, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. And we pray 